0: Welcome to the latest episode of Bureau 42's podcast on comic book physics. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. Now, last month I listed off a few of the suggestions that we've had from listeners for topics to go through. We're actually not going to be doing any of those this month. Since the last podcast, we've had another suggestion that caught my attention and got me a little more excited, so I figured that's the one we should do for the best possible podcast. Now, I'm going to try and attribute these suggestions properly, I don't remember exactly whose suggestion this was. I'm pretty sure it was Christopher Tyler Schwartz from the Horizon Labs group on Facebook. I may be mistaken in that, but he and Lex Pandragon from that group have probably provided more suggestions than anyone else. I've also had a few from Mark Smith and so forth. So this definitely came from one of those three. I believe it was Christopher. If not, I'll apologize. I'll dig it up and have a correction listed in next month's podcast. But in any event, we'll move on to this month's topic Cyclops Optic Blasts. So these are interesting, and part of the reason this grabbed my attention is because Cyclops has always been my favorite X-Men. I first got into superhero comics basically through the X-Men. When I tried superhero comics after starting with Archie, Transformers, and G.I. Joe, I grabbed four comics in the same day, including an issue of Batman, an issue of Superman, an issue of the Hulk, and an issue of classic X-Men reprinting specifically the second part of the fight against Moses Magnum which I believe was Uncanny X-Men 119. And I really like the idea of Cyclops, whose power was not just positive, but also had the downside, which is something that hadn't really come through in other media, especially doesn't come through in a lot of the DC heroes. But he has incredible power and no control over it, so he's constantly keeping himself in check. So I've thought quite a bit about cyclops optic blasts over the years. Some of them as I was going through my physics degrees trying to figure out ways to make them work. Because as they are described, they are beams of pure force and no energy. There's no heat. They just apply force, accelerate things, no energy involved. So we have to say, what does that mean? Well, first of all, what is a force? In the original definition... It was written in Latin by Newton. The one I've got here was then translated by Andrew Mott in 1729 and revised by Florian Kajori in 1934. It states all of Newton's laws, which implicitly define forces as follows. Number one. Every body continues in its state of rest or of uniform motion in a right line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. In more modern terminology than 1934, we say straight line instead of right line. Number two, the change in motion is proportional to the motive force impressed, and it is made in the direction of the right line in which the force is impressed. So direction here is specified because physicists didn't start using vectors until about 200 years after Newton died. Actually, the entirety of linear algebra only came around into physics in the early 20th century. So Newton's work was based on single variable calculus and some pretty convoluted geometric constructions, which is why he did a lot of work in two dimensions, very little in three. Seriously, if you think this stuff is hard to deal with in class now, imagine what it was like when Newton was doing it. So it didn't have vector components. He had a compass and straight edge. And rule number three, or Newton's third law, to every action there was always opposed an equal reaction or The mutual actions of two bodies upon each other are always equal, directed to contrary parts. So those are the ideas. We need to translate them into mathematics and into modern terminology. So first we define the terms. Rest is zero velocity. So not moving relative to your reference frame. Generally the lab or the surface of the earth. The reference frame is the thing you've chosen to mount your coordinate axes on. That's what you're measuring everything relative to. So... In a lot of purposes, especially high school labs, it's the bench you're working on. And we've got inertial and non-inertial reference frames. That's getting into a different podcast. So the second term is uniform motion in a right line. So this isn't just moving at a constant speed, but a constant velocity. So direction matters. Circular motion is not uniform motion. The speed is constant, but the direction changes. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to uniform circular motion, as we will later in this podcast. That means the speed and radius of the circle that the thing is moving through are constant. The direction is constantly changing. So it's not uniform motion, but it's as close as you can get with circular motion, which is why they call it uniform circular motion. The third term we need to define is quantity of motion. Today we call it momentum, which is the product of mass and velocity, as defined in an earlier podcast. So this is not velocity alone. That point is important later. And finally, the motive force, or what we call forces now, are just any sort of behaviors which change the momentum. This is, in fact, the proper definition of force. When most of us see a mathematical definition of force for the first time, it is in the form F equals mA. Heck, I've got maybe m times a be with you on a necktie. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's heard it that way. It's a simplification appropriate for the first problems we see that use force, but which rapidly breaks down under scrutiny. It assumes the mass doesn't change. So this works for balls on ramps and planets in space, but not for rockets launching into orbit who start off with a huge proportion of their mass in the form of fuel that's burned upon the escape from that gravity well and getting into orbit. A more accurate definition of force is the ratio of change in momentum to change in time. Listeners who know calculus may match that up to realize that force is the time derivative of momentum. So momentum is the product of mass and velocity, as we said earlier. When mass is constant, then f equals ma and f equals change momentum over change in time are completely equivalent definitions. But when the mass changes, we must use the definition involving momentum. And remember, velocity is a vector meaning direction is important, as is momentum. So we can have a force that changes direction but not speed, such as we get with circular motion. So the other thing we need to deal with is what is energy? Well, it's the ability to do work represented as either potential or kinetic energy. Kinetic energy is the energy of motion, which is easy enough to imagine. More kinetic energy means more speed. This is independent of direction, so uniform circular motion does not involve a change in energy. Now, potential energy is energy we don't see specifically enacted. It's the potential to do work. So we typically say that something has potential gravitational energy when it's on a surface. So if you have a ball on a counter, it has potential gravitational energy because if you slide it off the edge of that counter, well, then gravity will accelerate it to the ground and it builds up speed. The magnitude of the velocity increases as well. That means the kinetic energy increases because we have the conservation of energy, meaning all energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transformed. Then that energy has to be coming from somewhere we call potential energy. So we typically set the zero mark for potential energy at the lowest surface that we're dealing with when we're working in a lab. We don't technically need to. What matters with potential energy is change in positions. We could set the zero mark for our potential Anywhere we want in the room. We could sit at the ceiling if we want. What matters is that the counter is a meter high. That ball bearing will get one meter closer to the source of that gravity. And it's that one meter closer aspect that determines the energy, not some sort of absolute potential. If you want to think of that in other terms, if your lab is on the second floor of the building, you generally take the zero level of height at the floor of the room you're in Not at ground level, even though technically you could carve a hole in the floor and then it would drop significantly further down. So, are there other examples of forces that don't change direction aside from forces that produce uniform circular motion? Well, maybe. We have to take a look at the relationship between a force and energy when it's acting on a body. So, when we're doing algebra or calculus on the definition of the force, the applied force multiplied by the change in time gives the change in momentum aligned along the direction of the force. Now the algebra version, with calculus you just take the integral. When that force is parallel to the initial momentum, all of that force goes into changing the speed but not the direction. But what if the force is always perpendicular? Then there's never a change in speed and only a change in direction. So every other force can be broken down into a parallel piece and a perpendicular piece, which change the speed and direction respectively. Thus, only a force that stays perpendicular at all times to the thing it's acting on results in no change in energy, and that force would produce uniformly circular motion. So how can you tell by looking at it which force is which? We look at cyclops optic blasts, if we're going to do this without energy, do they fit this criteria? Again, leaning on calculus, we've got two ways to look at it, and there are measures called divergence and curl. You've heard talk about force fields. Now, force fields, as they appear in sci-fi, are usually essentially invisible walls that you're incapable of moving through. You'll see them on a lot of jail cells and whatnot, partly because it's a neat sci-fi idea, partly because it allows the actors to interact in and out of the cell in a relatively cheap fashion because this cell you see on screen doesn't have a door. They just put in some after effects or in the case of the original Star Trek, maybe just turn on some extra lights and you're done. Force fields in reality are more of a construct that we have come up with to help understand the concept. If you have the source of a force, like a planet produces a gravitational field or a magnet produces a magnetic field, We usually draw the force fields by figuring out which direction a small test object would get pushed. So in the case of a gravitational field, we figure out, if we put a small mass near our source of gravity, which direction is the force going to be pulling on it. And we draw force fields by mapping out little arrows in the direction that this small test charge is getting pushed or pulled. And we use the length of those arrows to represent the relative strength of the field at different positions. So a longer arrow means a greater push. So if we're talking gravity, bigger arrows are closer to the body, shorter arrows are further from the body. With magnetic fields, we pretend that we have a magnetic north monopole, so just a north pole, and a south pole, and figure out which way that moves. When you get into vector calculus, you can then use some of these vectors to measure properties of the fields. When you've got a vector field, you've got two different options for how you take the derivative, or how you figure out the slope of this field, figure out how it changes as position changes. One is called divergence, the other is called curl. Divergence will tell you how quickly these lines diverge relative to each other. So for example, a gravitational field is all divergence, zero curl, because the fields just start at one point, and those field lines are constantly moving away from each other. If you were to draw it on a graph, you wouldn't get any closed loops, you wouldn't get any bends or twists at all. If it's a single source, it just moves in a single direction. If you have a field like that, it changes speeds. It doesn't change directions that are perpendicular to that field, but it can accelerate them away until they're almost moving parallel. So if you get a slow-moving asteroid, it can get captured in an orbit by these divergence fields, partly because it's being accelerated toward the planet, and then you get a stable orbit when it's falling towards the planet at exactly the same rate as its horizontal motion is moving it away. So it maintains the same constant distance. In other words, if it moves a foot to the left when it's a certain distance away from the planet, Well, as it moves a foot to the left, the amount of distance it drops matches the curvature of that planet. So it maintains a constant distance from the surface. But if you start with something completely at rest, it will accelerate or decelerate solely in the direction of the motion. And if you don't hit that one sweet spot with that stable orbit, it'll just keep accelerating until it crashes into the surface, which is the much more common result. Now, a field that's all curl doesn't do this. A curl field is more like a magnetic field. That's the field that loops back in on itself. If all we have is curl, and it's 100% curl behavior, that means everything is always perpendicular to the direction of motion, and that means it will never change the speed. So that's how we tell the difference. If we've got loops that close in on themselves, they're all curl, and we don't change the speeds or the energy of the thing we're acting on, if they are straight lines, then they're all divergence. Cyclops optic blasts are clearly linear, so therefore they are creating fully divergent fields. So we've also seen that they will move objects they strike, possibly driving a sentinel across the lawn of Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Thus, they definitely change the speed of the target in the direction of the beam, which means the energy of that other body changes. So, can the beam itself be without energy, even if the target energy changes? Well, no, it can't. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The main one is that it's visible. That means it emits red light, and that means it emits energy. It releases other wavelengths of light, too. If you go back to X Factor 68, this is the story arc where Cyclops sacrifices his son, assuming he'll never see him again. At the time this was published, readers didn't know that his son would grow up to become cable and that he'd already returned. But Cyclops is trying to save his son from Apocalypse, and he blasts Apocalypse without his visor. It seems the ruby quartz lenses that don't just restrain the field, they also absorb a lot of the energy of those optic blasts. So they are much more powerful if that visor is not in place. Cyclops keeps it in place because that's his only means of control. In this case, Apocalypse was threatening his kid. He didn't care about control. He cared about putting Apocalypse down. So he took the visor off and let her rip with a massive bright white beam, which also implies that there's other wavelengths represented in Cyclops optic blasts when it's not being filtered. So that means it is some form of electromagnetic radiation, including at least part of the electromagnetic spectrum that covers enough visible light to make it appear white, and that ruby quartz can somehow absorb it, with the exception of a particular shade of red. This is actually entirely possible. So each atom or molecule has both an absorption spectrum and an emission spectrum. This is a side effect of quantum mechanics. Electrons are only allowed to exist in molecules and atoms if they are in a specific set of orbits, and that set is unique to each atom or molecule. Fluorescent lights work this way. The gases inside only emit light at specific wavelengths, which is why you get that uniform color there, and the light is either on or off, while incandescents turn red as they cool off and as they warm up. That's the emission spectrum. It's a result of electrons getting bumped into higher energy orbits due to incoming electrical current. When they drop into lower energy orbits, energy must be conserved, so that energy is emitted as a photon or particle of light. Since the electrons are confined to a specific set of orbits, only specific wavelengths or colors of light are allowed. That set of specific light frequencies is the emission spectrum for that material. On the other hand, the materials also have absorption spectrum, which is the specific set of frequencies of light the materials can absorb in the reverse process, bumping an electron from a lower energy orbit to a higher one. The emission and absorption spectra will match, since they have the same source. It's still the energy differentials between those two orbits that the electron is moving to and from. Incidentally, this light is subject to a Doppler shift, so this is what they use to determine the speed of distant stars. We look at their absorption spectra and determine how much Doppler shift those spectra need until they match the absorption spectra of known stellar components, such as hydrogen and helium. Then we can work that inverse to figure out the speeds of stars along the direction of a line connecting that star to Earth. Anyway, back to the optic blasts. This also explains why they can reflect off shiny surfaces. There is at least a major component that's visible light. Now, because everything else about the optic blast remains consistent when it does reflect off that shining surface, it appears that these blasts are entirely composed of visible light. There's just a whole lot of it. And that's where we get to the other point. I mentioned there's a couple of reasons that we can't have a beam without energy. This is the other one. Energy and momentum need to be conserved in any closed system. So the original explanation for Cyclops optic blasts was that Cyclops stored solar energy and then emitted it without recoil. And that simply doesn't work. Emitting it without recoil means momentum is not conserved. The momentum of the thing he's blasting increases in the direction away from Cyclops. Nothing else has any corresponding increase of momentum in the direction towards Cyclops. There are later explanations of his powers that fix this. The solar energy that Cyclops depends on is only used to open and close apertures to parallel dimensions. That solves the conservation law problems. Energy and momentum are only conserved in closed systems, meaning that there's sort of a box they can't escape, that they're closed inside of. Our universe as a whole is a closed system. Earth alone is not a closed system, despite the climate change deniers claiming otherwise. But if we punch a hole into another universe, then that makes it an open system. So, let's just hope Earth-616 doesn't start draining from Earth-1218. Whichever universe they draw the energy from for these things, there's got to be a story there. Just waiting for someone to write it. If they can make Exiles as good as it was in the Judd Winnick era, there's the perfect relaunch point and or summer event. Uh, Marvel, if you're listening, go ahead and take that idea. I want to read that story. But in any event, the second point where it appeared that it didn't work was that lack of conservation laws and conservation of energy momentum. The idea of opening up apertures to a parallel dimension make that work. The energy comes from the other dimension, so that energy reduces while ours increases, and then something on the far end of that aperture gets that corresponding increase in momentum in the opposite direction to Cyclops' optic blast and the thing that's blasting. So that is enough of an explanation to make that work. Opening up apertures into parallel dimensions solve those problems. So the question now, now that we've established that these beams have to have some form of energy, is it still possible that they do it without heat? That's why they said that there was no energy initially to explain why a focused and prolonged optic blast did not heat up the thing Cyclops was blasting. Unfortunately, that doesn't work the way they're depicted. If they were invisible, yes. Electromagnetic radiation can only convert to photons of less energy. So we go from least energy to most energy. Now, if we go through the electromagnetic spectrum and arrange it from least to most energy, we get, in order, radio waves, microwaves, infrared or heat rays, visible light, ultraviolet light, x-rays, gamma rays, and then finally, at the highest energy, cosmic rays. Yes, cosmic rays have more power than gamma rays, so the thing should be able to give the Hulk a run for as money as he has over the years. So, Thus, visible light can decay into infrared light. Which means this thing may not be warm when it's there, but it can heat things up over time. Because the visible light that is being absorbed can decay into infrared light, and that's heat energy. Now, if the optic blasts were not visible, then they could be based on radio or microwave radiation, but then we need to worry about absorption and effectiveness. I know microwaves heat food pretty effectively, even though that's below the infrared waves. That's more of a complicated reaction that's unique to water molecules. It's not just an infrared heat, it's a vibrational heat. The microwaves just cause the water molecules to vibrate more and then you get that random Brownian motion that drives the heat that way. So if Cyclops' optic blasts were not visible, and we know that they are because characters have referred to the color, then we could have overcome this. We could have said the blasts themselves cannot produce heat unless you get that unique microwave-type reaction. The issue then is how effectively they work on other objects because they'd have to be lower energy than the infrared rays that basically turns them into radio or microwaves. Now, each of these has a wavelength, and the shorter the wavelength, the more energy it has. The wavelength of a microwave is about 2 or 3 centimeters, and radio waves can get well, from there as long as you want. Most of the radio waves that we use for actual radio and TV broadcasts are on the order of a meter or so, possibly more. depends on the exact frequency and the exact channel you're tuning into. The problem with that is the amount of distance required to absorb that. As a general rule of thumb, if you're going to try to absorb electromagnetic radiation with a 2 centimeter wavelength, you need to have at least 1 centimeter of material. You want to have at least half a wavelength for material before you have a reasonable chance of expecting to absorb it. So this does limit how small cyclops targets can get, or more specifically, how thin they can get. If a material is transparent to radio waves, it would be transparent to an optic blast based on radio waves. Same with microwaves. You'd want to avoid microwaves because so many of those targets are living things, which means they've got a lot of water in them, which means, despite what Batman Begins would imply, blasting them with a whole lot of microwaves would boil them from the inside out. So we would have to move to something a little bit larger, and given the amount of Humanoids that Cyclops has blasted, either mutants, humans, or aliens, you wouldn't want to get too much greater than that. This is also why when you're dealing with a microwave and you're cooking something large, you want to get through and stir it to take the things that were on that outer centimeter or two and start mixing them into the center and vice versa. Because the stuff that gets heated in the middle gets heated through conduction. It's only the outside or the outermost centimeter or two that gets heated directly by the microwaves themselves. So that's pretty much everything we have to say about Cyclops optic blasts, at least at this time. So we do have a few other suggestions that have come through that we'll be looking at in future months. If you have suggestions of your own, please feel free to email them to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or comment directly in the comics when this podcast is live on bureau42.com. Now In the past, I just asked for suggestions of comic book physics you'd specifically like me to look at. So things that are showing up in the comics that you'd like me to touch on. I'm going to open it up a little bit more, so if there's any concepts in physics you'd like to hear more about, fire me an email, let me know, and I'll see what I can do to find an application of that physics in comics and discuss it that way. So in the meantime, please... Feel free to drop by iTunes and leave us a review either on the master audio feed or on the individual podcast audio feed for this that I'm still working on. I keep getting errors that they're down for maintenance after almost a month. And if you drop a review on iTunes, we would appreciate it. It does go a long way to helping this podcast get noticed, which means more people sending in suggestions, which means more content. So until the last Wednesday of next month, that's all we have to say, and thank you for listening.